This is the dirty debrief for scene one. And these debriefs are where I'm going to read interesting listener thoughts and feedback, but also tell you about the backstory about how I put the episode together, about the sources I used and the decisions I made. There's a couple motivations for this. One is I love podcasts about craft, about writing, about making podcasts. And another big motivation is I used to teach podcasting at a couple universities before my injury. And I believe in media literacy. And I wish it was a bit easier to get transparency around how things are made. I think this is even more important now because so many podcasts are not coming from traditional institutions, you know, that have like a code of ethics or coming from people who are trained journalists. I don't think this is a problem necessarily. And one of the things that's so great about all of these mediums on the internet obviously is giving a platform to people who have not had access to these institutions before. But I feel like when you're telling history or interviewing people, it's important to be transparent about whether it is journalism that you're presenting. In other words, are you fact-checking your sources? Are you editorializing? Or are you quoting other people's interpretations of history? Like, what are you doing? And I am not a trained journalist, and I don't have any help on this podcast. I'm not fact-checking this podcast. I'm not beholden to anyone or anything besides my own whims, but I can tell you about my whims if anyone wants to hear it. Because the podcast was originally just a rehab exercise, I wasn't thinking too much about structure. I thought I would just do a very detailed recap. And the initial inspiration around how that recap might look was to do something like Star Wars Minute, which is a podcast that's been around a really long time in the world of podcasting since 2013. And it does what it sounds like. It recaps every single minute of the Star Wars movies. And I remember when I first heard about this podcast and I was like, whoa, that's way too much. And then I listened to an episode and I was like, never mind, this makes sense. This is cool. And now there's lots of different minute by minute podcasts. For mine, I landed on doing every scene instead because I liked, <laughs> that was a lot fewer episodes as a concept, but also that it was a complete storytelling beat and that really satisfied me as a writer. During the worst months of my recovery, I listened to a lot of recap podcasts. Because I couldn't watch screens, it seemed like the next best thing. And I was actually surprised at how much I was able to, you know, sort of see vicariously through some of the podcast hosts. One podcast I listened to a lot was Xena Warrior Podcast. The show started off with episodes that sort of summarized two episodes of Xena at a time with some commentary. But as the show grew and their audience grew, 
the host began recapping complete scene-by-scene episodes. Before listening to this podcast, I would say I was like a casual Xena fan. I thought it was campy and fun. And as any self-respecting lesbian, I adored Lucy Lawless. But I didn't really take the show seriously. But the hosts of Xena Warrior podcast were smart and fun and loved the show in an accessible enough way that I found myself really caring about the TV show too. Like caring about episodes I'd never even seen except through their descriptions. I just found the whole thing so remarkable. But I didn't end up doing just a straightforward recap like that podcast for a couple of reasons. And one is that, surprise, I'm a big time overthinker. And so it helps to have some strict boundaries about what exactly I'll be talking about. But even more important is that these kinds of shows, I think, are usually best served with more than one host, right? So you have that energy of like, I'm just hanging out with my friends, talking about our favorite TV and movies. Also, just a little note on hosting. Being a really good, you know, banter style, conversation style host is a very specialized skill that I don't actually have. (laughs) If you think about the big movie TV podcasts like Unspooled or You Are Good or Buffering the Vampire Slayer, even if those podcasts are heavily edited, the hosts are clearly good at being articulate, off the cuff, having good banter. If you haven't had a lot of practice or if you aren't a performer, it's pretty rare that someone can just sit down and do that in a very entertaining and thoughtful way. If you ever hear me be interviewed or say something that sounds well thought out and articulate, it's probably because I wrote the ideas down first to get them clear in my mind. Or in the case of Butt Out Baby, like it's scripted. These debriefs are not scripted, but I did sit down and write a bunch, stream of consciousness, trying to figure out what I wanted to say. And I'm sort of glancing at that document as I go through. And you better believe I'm going to edit this a bunch. I once worked for a coalition that worked towards closing the gender pay gap. And you know what? The gender pay gap is way more of a complex issue than like, a male lead getting paid more than a female lead in a Hollywood film. The gap exists more so because entire classes of jobs that are associated with women are paid less. I could go on, but uh, maybe I'll save that for a relevant scene. I'm sure there'll be a relevant scene. Anyway, I was nearing the end of my time at this job, and one of the last things I committed to do was present for the coalition at this anti-poverty conference And it was this conference full of all these badass activists. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to think I'm presenting some like rich white lady bullshit. But by this point, I'd spent a lot of time writing and thinking about the issue. And so when I finished my presentation at this conference, everyone was just like, oh, wow, that sounds really important. (laughs) And I was like, damn, I just got good at explaining this at the very end of my job. Which is all to say, if you're like me and you're not a comedian and you can't be on a panel and just riff and say really funny, smart things, you maybe can sound passably smart if you just write it down and prepare. I think sometimes we tend to live in the space of like, I'm just not the type of person that can do X and just leave it at that. But it's like, sometimes you can muddle your way through a version of it. 
Probably the most unusual choice I made around the structure was adding this section that I called the dramatic argument. For those of you who don't know me personally, which is, I don't know what, like three of you, I've worked or volunteered in radio and audio since 2008. And so I've been around storytelling for a while, but I didn't start trying to be a writer in any serious way until 2015. And I was mostly interested in screenwriting for the first years and did what newbie writers often do, which is look at a lot of screenwriting books, listen to a lot of screenwriting podcasts. And eventually I found that it changed how I watched movies and TV, how I read novels. I found myself becoming more and more impressed with stories that were seemingly simple, that had understandable character growth, lots that made sense, and a resonant point to the overall story. That's because when I tried to write my own stuff, I realized how fucking hard it is to pull that off. The first serious short story I tried to write was about a pigeon who learns how to read and becomes obsessed with getting to Montreal. And let me tell you, there was a lot of world building I did within the lives of my pigeon characters. They all have this like naming ceremony at puberty. There's a bit about how some of them get stolen away to become homing pigeons. There's a tree where the berries make them drunk. The lead pigeon is gay, of course. I had my friend Michelle read it and give me some feedback. And let me say, if you're a new writer, I really hope you have a Michelle in your life to encourage you, but also give gentle and truthful feedback. And I uh, just pulled up her notes to remind myself what she said. And she said, (laughs) I think you might be forcing too many issues into this short story. Rape, female disempowerment, limiting access to literacy, cycles of drug use, street life, etc. Yes, I tried to cover all of these things in my pigeon story. And of course, like a good story can speak to many layers of the human experience. Personally, I think a story tends to be most powerful when there is one struggle at the core. Just think of Thelma and Louise, one of my all-time favorite movies. It's a perfect movie. The dramatic argument for that film could be something like, when it comes to sexual assault, the law does not protect women. Or if you want to phrase it as a question, it could simply be, what happens when the law doesn't protect women? And the movie just provides a dramatic escalation for that answer. And as a result, touches on a lot of aspects of sexism. One of the things I cut from the first episode was a quote from Tolkien, who really did not appreciate this kind of analysis on his books. Oliver Whitehead, a.k.a. Claire's dad, Claire who did the musical interludes, performed the quote, so I'll take the opportunity to play it here. I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so, since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. Particularly Tolkien was really 
bothered by people trying to suss out whether Lord of the Rings was actually an allegory about World War I or two. Which makes me wonder how C.S. Lewis felt when he read this, because apparently they were good friends. And uh, the man is famous for writing a super popular Christ allegory in the form of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It also makes me wonder how much of a gender and race thing this is. So we have popular white male author whose work is assumed to be a sweeping political commentary, whereas I've heard authors Marlon James and Jeanette Winterson talk about how with their books, there's this expectation that what they wrote must be confessionals. In both instances, the writers are like, uh, it's actually my talent and imagination, a-holes. So you know where I stand on theme in the dramatic argument. I like it. I think it's a helpful tool. So once I decided that's one of the frameworks I was going to use for each scene, I had to figure out how to talk about this cusp that Eleanor Bergstein talks about that 19, the summer of 1963 represented. And you'll remember I have that quote where she talks about how it was like the last summer of liberalism. <laughs> and this set me off on a bit of a spiral when I was like, oh shit, I'm going to have to define liberalism. Do I even know what it means? And it's obviously one of those words that people use differently in all sorts of different contexts. In my world, for the most part, because I'm in a progressive feminist social environment, when people call something liberal, it tends to be said as a pejorative, like someone's a liberal feminist, as in they're kind of mainstream, they have mainstream values that are shallow. Also for the Americans listening, one of our major political parties is called the Liberals with a capital L. And so it's even more confusing. So if you ask someone in Canada, are you a liberal? Um, it can mean a couple different things. But anyways, I tried to like listen to a book that Adam Gopnik, the New Yorker writer, wrote about liberalism and like I could barely understand it. Um, except for it seemed like when he was forced to totally synthesize it, the idea at the center is that liberalism's main standpoint is reform. And so that's what I ended up saying in the podcast. There's a few examples I initially included and ended up cutting just because of feedback I got that that section was incredibly long-winded. But I want to tell you about them because it's like when authors talk about world building and how basically the reader only sees the tip of the iceberg of the world building they did, but they had to cultivate so much understanding for themselves to be able to write the stories in a coherent way. And this is perhaps a little bit similar with something like this. I just defined liberalism in one sentence in the podcast, but I had to think about it quite a bit. One of the examples I was going to use was about Sojourner Truth, the abolitionist, feminist, former slave, because her journey out of slavery was unusual, or I hadn't heard something like this before, because she was born into slavery in New York State, actually not too far from the Catskills area. And this was at a time when New York was doing this gradual abolition, so-called. Basically, it was this legislation that said that children born after a certain date 
would be free-ish because they actually would be indentured servants into their 20s. And then there was quite a bit of pushback on this and the state changed course and said, okay, ev- never mind, everyone will be free, but the law is not actually going to take effect for 10 years. It reminded me of this idea of reform because there is this acknowledgement that like, yes, slavery violates human rights, but it's too disruptive to just overturn the system overnight. And so we'll gradually phase it out. And you can imagine defenses of doing something like this, but it is true that at the end of the day, it's equivocating the comfort of the people directly or indirectly causing harm as being just as valid as a group being denied their full humanity. After I recorded that section, I was like, mm, I've never really used the word equivocate in a sentence. Maybe I should like double check what it means. Definitely does not mean what I thought it did. Equivocate, use ambiguous language so as to conceal the truth or avoid committing oneself. Like kind of what they did with calling it gradual abolition, the legislation, but that's not how I was trying to use it. I was saying, I was trying to use equivalency, you know, that they were <laughs> saying that one thing was just as valid as the other. Welcome to Behind the Curtain. The other example I came across at the time of making the episode was interview with the author Rivka Galchin, who wrote Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which is a fiction book, but based, I think I haven't read it, based loosely on Johannes Kepler's mother, who people did think was a witch. And anyways, it was an interview with her and the interviewer asked, what did you learn about the time period that astonished you the most? And I'll quote her directly. A wonder was the incredible ethical and legal effort that went into trying to make witch trials more fair. That sounds absurd from our modern viewpoint, but thinking through whether confession by torture could count, whether a rumor reported only by a woman or child was valid, etc., it's such a tangle of good faith and viciousness. I was just so struck by that because of course, right? Like they didn't think what they were doing was like wild and inhumane and extreme. It was their system. And so they took it seriously. And so the good hearted people were like, how do we make this thing just more fair? If there's a problem, it's just, we just got to make it more fair. And I came across, because I was curious about this, I looked into it a little bit more and I came across an article talking about like really big debates around whether spectral evidence counted and that meant whether people's dreams could be used as legit evidence. So all of that to me illuminated the way I think Eleanor Bergstein is talking about liberalism as opposed to radical action and what my dad talks about in the episode. It does make you wonder about our systems now. I feel like potentially prison abolitionists could say, you know, in a hundred years, people are going to find it totally absurd that we justified having prisons because people could like take poetry lessons in them. 
Well, if you enjoyed this debrief, please feel free to email me with any questions you might have about the making of the podcast or about your feelings on the scenes. This past scene in the show notes, I called it a doozy and scene two, I don't know, is like a uber doozy. It's, it is, there's a lot, a lot, a lot. Scene three, going to be a little bit more lighthearted, but scene two, you might have something you want to say about it. Anyways, feel free to email me and I will do another debrief. Until then. <laughs>